Welcome to Not Enough Champagne, a podcast hoping one day to have a media empire of its own that it can break up. My name is Corey Hazelhurst, and my partner in propaganda is Steve Haynes. Hey, Corey. So um, since we recorded last, listeners, there's been significant media news because Rupert Murdoch is stepping down as chair of Fox Corps and also ex- as executive chairman of News Corporation as well. So it's a chance for us to talk about his legacy and talk about the UK media environment leading up to the next general election. It looks like Rupert Murdoch is standing down so that he'll spend more time with Fox News. <laughs> well, spend more time with his loved ones, obviously. I, I think it's, it's, it is important to kind of note with someone like Rupert Murdoch actually standing down from kind of like day-to-day involvement of, uh, of, a, bit of uh, a media empire. It is actually a major, major thing. Like Murdoch is very much one of the most prevalent like media figures of definitely of the of the late twentieth century, arguably for a, a lot of so far of the twenty first century. Although I would argue it's been getting less and less relevant as a result of social media, right? The rise of social media and uh, how easy it is to to form alternative um, kind of like media outlets. But it it, it is a kind of like a, a major event that you know has the potential to be the start of something quite interesting or different depending on what on what happens because once the hand of someone like Murdoch is off the tiller of uh, of, com- of of a media co- conglomerate and corporations things could change drastically they may not but they could do it's like the hand of history is off their shoulder indeed because um say so, because he's still going to be chair chairman emeritus which is one of those wonderful meaningless titles which i suppose it, it's sort of a I saw one analyst describe it as a "Don't worry, I'm still here." Hands on the teller. Um, and it's for those of the, the, those Succession fans. I, I still haven't watched it. I'm afraid I've been spending my time watching actually a really good Michael Cockrell documentary about Ted Heath, which is definitely worth watching. He, he's handed them over to Lachlan Murdoch, hasn't he? Who is just as conservative as he is, I suppose. Um, and so I suppose Fox News then is in safe hands. Yeah, you would you would assume so. Um, uh, what what I found fa- absolutely fascinating throughout all of this is that ap- apparently James Murdoch, who to my mind was like one of like the nastier Murdochs, because obviously he's been he's the one that's kind of had like UK like headlines about him at various points because of like the phone hacking and, and things yeah. like that, wasn't it? Um, way back when. But like, so I, I I was shocked to discover that he's apparently the liberal black sheep of the family. <laughs> I imagine, yeah, I imagine in the same way that David Cameron is the liberal black sheep of past Conservative Party prime ministers. I love how also phone packing is way back when, when it was ten or fifteen years ago, like in way back in the dim and distant past. We all remember that grainy black and white footage of James Murdoch and Rupert Murdoch testifying, yeah, with, uh, Tom with... Watson wearing a two foot high top hat. 
yeah, when we were when we all went to the cinema for our news, and the gentleman at the piano played the music uh, whilst the the uh, the the latest updates happened on the on the screen. Yeah, that's that's exactly what happened. I'd have gone to the cinema and see Louise Mensch interviewing Rupert Murdoch. I'd have wondered if I had breakfast. And I think what I wanted to talk about just in this first bit of the series, uh, just a few episodes we're going to talk about the Murdochs or Rupert Murdoch in the media environment more generally. It's just that especially on the left, there is this feeling that Rupert Murdoch is a massive bogeyman and that he's some so and that he's single-handedly essentially destroyed democracy. Uh, if you talk to some people, not just in the UK, but Britain, uh, sorry, sorry, SMP fans, um, not just in not just in the UK, but in uh in Australia and America as well. So there's a, a a news uh, in, in the Guardian. There's an interview this week that Zoe Williams has done with Michael Wolff, who wrote Fire and Fury and a few of the books about the Trump administration. And he's just got a book this week out about the Murdochs, which sounds like if you did read Fire and Fury, and I feel like if you haven't, it's definitely a charity shop near you. It seems very similar to that kind of book where Michael Wolff kind of somehow gets people to say outrageous things that he can't really attribute to anyone. But <laughs> he has this kind of fly-on-the-wall aspect, even though he definitely was not there. Or if he was, then no one really seems to have filtered what they were saying. It's very interesting shtick, I suppose. But what Zoe Williams says in this interview, it is the, the, the piece is interesting. It's definitely worth seeking out. But she says that Murdoch managed the slow-motion transfiguration of our politics to a toxic sink where immigrants are to blame for everything and a blonde sociopath could sweep into power on buffoonery. On buffoonery. Um, not sure who that bond sociopath, bond sociopath, this is going terribly. <laughs> um, who, who could that blonde sociopath be, Steve? Uh, could it be one Boris Johnson? Presumably. Uh, Boris Johnson, of course, famously, I think sacked by the Times that hated Murdoch press for making up a quote. And so actually, presumably, Boris Johnson isn't Rupert Murdoch's fault. Presumably, if we're going to say that Boris Johnson is the fault of anyone, particularly in the media, it's either the Telegraph, who he was Europe correspondent for, where he made up all the stuff about the EU and penises and whatever, it, I mean, condoms and sausages and whatever else it was, um, or it's the Spectator that he actually edited and wrote for, or... It's have I got news for you? It's have I got news for you? Like it, it's 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 have I got news for you's fault. Um, but like aside from like the analysis of how we ended up with Boris Johnson being an actual important figure, um, to go to the actual topic of uh, of, of discussion, like, it's very the left likes a likes a boogeyman they like something they can rage against because 90 percent of the problems that the left wants to actually resolve or fix are systematic they are systemic to capitalism they are systemic to the, the way our governments work they and how they function and they are not particularly uh and the solutions to them are not particularly easy to to put in place and they can be quite boring and dull if you actually do it properly so what the left likes to do is find itself a nice figure, and, uh, and 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 not quite to the level of uh, 1984's like two minutes of hate, um, but like will kind of like find a find that 
find a villain and then go out their way to try and like have at that person because of course they must be the problem and when you're somebody who's as ubiquitous in the media and uh, as as Rupert Murdoch is you end up with a a significant um movement of people just focused on him almost and him alone like you could say 90% of the things that you, you say about Rupert Murdoch could be said against the Barclay brothers um, for instance who, who own the Telegraph but you don't never hear anything near as much like you'll hear a little bit here and there but most people probably don't know who the Barclay brothers are everybody knows who Rupert Murdoch is um, and so you have this just quite interesting phenomena where he has just become this um this 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 figurehead for everything that's systematically wrong with the media with 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 the media when he himself is just one small part of it like he's not the be all and end all him going away doesn't solve anything necessarily um but if you could have if you could have uh, if if 10 years ago say you you know you've given certain people a wish to be able to get rid of him in that instance a number of them would have taken it and they'd uh, absolutely would have used it for that i think that's a really interesting point so recently i reread david ranowitz's book food your histories on conspiracy theories and an interesting theme that runs through a lot of those conspiracy theories is that often there are um abstract processes happening that as you say are uh they are systemic and they're hard to explain they're quite abstract and quite complex and so a lot of conspiracy theories end up being devised essentially to they give human persona to these quite complex phenomena so for instance a lot of the mccarthyism hysteria starts in the early 50s in america that is changing after the Second World War, lots of social changes happening. Uh, there's lots of change in the world as well, what with Mao's triumph from the Chinese Civil War and the McCarthyist hysteria is in, in some level an, a, a, a sort of reaction against a lot of that. In a similar way, the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, when they are sort of written about in the early 20th century and sort of take off in popularity after the First World War, that's a period in which there's a huge amount of industrialization in Europe. Um, there's the growth of the industrial capitalism um, and there's the growth of, uh, of, of big banks, I suppose. And actually um, you, what you end up with is the Jews and the protocols of Zion are essentially used as a way of explaining these complex changes that are happening. And I feel like, in a way, a lot of those changes are happening anyway. Like as, as you said, like Rupert Murdoch, it, it's a it's a twentieth century thing. It's it's seventy years. So nineteen fifty three is when he, inher- he inherited his media empire from his father. And so, if you think about a lot of the changes that have happened since then, you know, you've got the, the fact that you've got the decline of deference. Um, that actually means I think newspapers are talking about politics in a much more irreverent way. Uh, people are treating politicians with maybe less respect than they would have done uh, in the press decades before. Uh, even even the sun itself, you know, that is in many ways a response to a gap 
that partly the Daily Mirror left in the time, but the Sun is very much a response to that young, upwardly mobile, working class, low middle class um, product of the affluent society of the 60s and the baby boomer generation. And if it hadn't been Rupert Murdoch filling that void with the sun, there's something else would have filled it. And even, I suppose, page three girls, you know, if you think about the the change, not just in our kind of attitudes to language, you know, back in 1953, when Rupert Murdoch inherited the sun, like my granddad would have not allowed you to say uh, Jesus Christ or damn in his house because that was blaspheming. Whereas our language could even be a bit, you know, we can bandy words like Willis and go around and, that's almost okay in polite conversation but in terms of the page three girls and attitudes to sex and pornography as well not saying it's for the best but it's been a massive change in attitudes and sexual mores and in the openness in which we talk about and present sex and that would have happened regardless of whether Rupert Murdoch stayed in Australia and was a beat reporter there or if he came and bought the Sun and the Times yeah, and I think that uh, you, you've highlighted quite some of the interesting little, uh, almost like, I don't know if hypocrisy is quite the right word, but like inconsistencies in the way Murdoch himself is is is, is presented. Because, like, you know, we're, we're, we're happy to suggest that Rupert Murdoch, um, you know, is the reason for why we, we, have, we have immigrant bashing headlines and, and things like that. But we don't talk about Rupert Murdoch, despite the fact that the page three was so prolific and so um, risque and different. And we don't present Rupert Murdoch as being a part of that narrative of, for lack of a better term, sexual liberation in that sort of way. Like, even though like that that open, more openness to discussion with uh, of, of sex, more risque stuff here and there, whatever you want to put it. And if you if he is influential, that should be a part of it as well um which we don't talk about him in that regards at all like the if there if there's any discussion it's just page three is a bad thing isn't he a terrible person for allowing it but page three was as you say there was a, a gap in the market for something and as a result of that sort of thing being there you know you can track you can trace page uh you can probably tr- uh, trace uh, a direct line from page three to OnlyFans and 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 more modern uh, concepts of uh, of sex work in some form in terms of like the influence that it has. So why, if 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 Murdoch is this boogeyman who's a bit able to influence things, we need to we would need to actually admit that there's other things that he's in, in involved in which we don't do. We just end up f- focused and highlighted on one or two core things, which implies to me that people aren't actually paying attention to to actually what the sun or any in the news international uh, so news corp businesses actually were the same for the most part it's only when it was here's a headline i don't like and then yeah. that becomes the rage point yeah i, I don't really want to talk too much no, no. about pastry and i think for, for me it's the the, the point about pastry girls is there, the, the, in the 70s is a period in which porn is ubiquitous enough that it's not Rupert Murdoch's fault. So there's one of the first Inspector Morse novels in which Inspector Morse goes and visit, basically goes to his to the moon and watches a porn film. And I feel if it's ubiquitous enough that you're able to talk about it in Inspector Morse or it's being satirised in George and Mildred, then 
this is something that is happening regardless. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I'm, I'm finding that conspiracy theories on left and right very, very interesting at the moment. And we've talked a lot about how Murdoch is the bogeyman of the left, and that's partly because of his support for Margaret Thatcher and then Tony Blair and the son's lack of support for Neil Kinnock, and we will talk about that. Uh, but you've got these conspiracy theories on the on the right as well. I mean, we've we've literally got a former prime minister basically saying she was ousted in a conspiracy of left wing bankers and civil servants. Um, and you've got Matt. So and actually, you've got someone like like Matt Goodwin, who apparently is still an academic, who is saying that there is this this new elite of um, really powerful, influential people like Gary Lineker and Carol Vorderman, who are part of our new governing elite, despite, you know, essentially taking over Britain through the medium of light entertainment, which I suppose is quiet. I mean, it, what 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 was our, uh, our point about Boris Johnson earlier? I mean, if it worked for him, then... Uh... <laughs> True. Um, I think if... If Carol Vorderman or Gary Lineker ever comes Prime Minister, I will eat a cake baked in the shape of Fulwillis's face. I don't know if I could bake a cake that looked like that. Oh, you can get. I'm sure you can get cakes made of photos, though, can't you? I'm, I'm sure. Yeah, oh, yeah, you almost certainly can get something like that. So, if, if worse comes to worse, we'll just uh, stick a stick a photocopy of his face on there and just make you eat paper. <laughs> That's right. It's a bit like Paddy Ashton in his hat, isn't it? Yeah. Um, it's not. To, this isn't to defend Rupert Murdoch in any way. And it's not to defend the media landscape we have in the UK in any way. And actually, as you've said, um, there's a tradition of media moguls which goes back at least 100 years. So you mentioned the Barclay Brothers. Um, I've been, If you watch TV shows, there's a certain type of political thriller in the 80s and even comedies like Drop the Dead Donkey where you've got newspaper proprietors who are dictating the headline down the phone and who are dictating this is what the front page copy is going to be. So like a very British coup has it. Drop the Dead Donkey definitely has it. And the person I think they're satirising that, I don't necessarily think that's Rupert Murdoch. I feel that's very much Robert Maxwell. Yeah, I think I think it's Robert, more, more Robert, Robert Maxwell than anything. Um, it also potentially could be, because like if you... Like, like for instance, Lord Rothermere, who founded the Daily Mail, was obviously the, the bit, the bit further back. But like that, he was very hands on in terms of like how the the, the paper was uh, presenting issues and organised and, and and things like that. Um, and and in terms of what he wanted to to see out of it, quite famously saying to his journalist, "Get me a murder a day, and I'm happy," you know, because he was very much say, literally saying, "These are the stories I want," like because this is because like this is this is what I think is actually going to get people interested in and buy the paper, and uh, yeah, so like that notion of like that that newspaper proprietor being very hands on isn't new at all. By when you get to the when you get to the 80s and there's plenty of examples of of that sort of thing and yeah and i think the most prolific one probably is maxwell um just because well it's maxwell well he was the he was with the biggest most colorful character wasn't yeah yeah because murdoch's many things but he's not actually that interesting as an individual and as a character is he i suppose maybe too much of a workaholic i mean the fact that you can work for 70 years and then still not really retire yeah um and also, I suppose, if you, so if you're going to look at his his legacy, this isn't to say that 
he's had a positive effect at all, actually. Because actually you look at, um, so something we'll probably talk about later episodes is, is Fox News. There's a very significant lawsuit happening at the moment. And it, well, it has happened, hasn't it? With Fox and the um, the Dominion voting systems who've sued Fox and I believe have been, are, are going to pay out a lot of money, hundreds of millions of dollars, um, essentially because Fox News said that the voting uh, that the voting machines were rigged, and I, I believe Rupert Murdoch testified under oath saying, "Well, they knew it wasn't true, but um, people believe that essentially it was it was good copy." Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, Fox News quite famously at this point does not uh even though news is in its in the in the title of the of the of the network uh legally it presents itself as an entertainment program uh, and that's the things that it says on it should not necessarily be believed that is a literal argument that has been made by fox news about tucker carlson um, and a number of other issues as to why they shouldn't be sued for you know whatever reason which is ludicrous <laughs> but um yeah and, and and it does go to show that there is a definite issue um with uh certain types of uh, how the likes of fox news handle themselves and you know th- thankfully in the uk we don't have that quite that that same setup and gb news which is our equivalent of fox news is doing piss poorly um and not doing doing and not actually generating much buzz or anything other than scandal um despite best efforts of the uh of the likes of uh, paul marshall to try and fund it and turn it into something well and actually i, I suppose on that it's so i suppose another legacy of a lot of the Murdoch papers is um you you could have a look at their record saying climate change so there's an interesting study on australian newspapers and looking at the news core newspapers and their record on reporting climate change stories and obviously australia somewhere big emitter of carbon emissions we've talked on other podcasts about the uh effects um the fact you've had more heat waves and forest fires as a result of uh unstable global climate and tends to be that murdoch newspapers tend to have fewer articles on climate the ones that tend to be in there um not not all of them, but a significant minority of them tended to uh, raise doubt over the con- the scientific consensus of climate change with originally doubt. Um, and so I suppose if you're going to be as generous as you could to the Zoe Williams quote that we started the episode with, you could potentially say that um, there's been a bit of a coursing of the discourse and certainly if you were to look at, at Brexit and we haven't talked about Brexit yet. So, you know, we should definitely do that because you, you love it when I, I bring it up. But if you, that's probably, if you're going to look at the the time this podcast has been around, there is an argument to be made that the, uh, the climate in the newspapers over the referendum helped. And that's partly because generally it was found that, UK residents tended to be the most ignorant about the EU and about the workings of institutions, didn't know if, say, Switzerland was a member. You could potentially see that as a Murdoch legacy, but equally, I think 
that sort of infotainment, the sort of the the fact that you've got, uh, as you've alluded to, there it's easier for. It turns out it's just easier for randomers in Birmingham to hook up over Zoom and record podcasts and try and pretend they're in the media industry. You can um, get random hedge funders who can fund a, a radio station. The, it's it's really expensive to do high quality journalism, and it's much easier to be <clears throat> a, an out of work actor having a midlife crisis talking about how female journalists are unattractive. Yeah, or be Russell Brand and go down your own little bright ring conspiratorial rabbit hole, um, seemingly partially as a way to, uh, uh, to 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 get your defence in before accusations against you uh, get made on uh, national telly. Odd that, like the, the the rise of social media, the rise of the internet has massively changed. Obviously, the media landscape. And it has made and 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 especially especially thing uh, platforms like YouTube, and to a lesser degree things like Patreon, um, are actually um, make a massive difference in terms of being able to open up the doors of being a, a as you say, a part of the media, quote unquote. Like I mean, you know, you and I would never necessarily just define ourselves as, as that because we've got this podcast. But in a broader sense, we kind of are. It's um, a terrifying, depressing. I know it, it really is. Um, <laughs> the UK deserved better than this. <laughs> <laughs> um, but like, it, it's it, it's never been easier for people to get to say things and get their voice heard. Um, you know, a, a lot of people do it, and no one's listening. But enough people are able to kind of present their themselves in such a way where they do generate money from it. They can make a living off of it. Like on the left, you've got Navara Media. Like they've actually done a very good job at monetizing what what they do and actually turning it into a viable uh, media company. Like disagree with a lot of them in, in a number of ways, but like they're they're they're, they're very good at what they do. Um, You've also then got on the on the opposite side of things. You've got your more kind of like talking head types, like Ben Shapiro, um, of 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 the right, or like Matt Walsh over in the US, and and people like that, who are very much kind of able to present themselves as almost like media figures of a similar vein to Tucker Carlson, um, who had the full, who used to have the full might of Fox News behind him, but they were just as relevant as he was in a lot of ways. In terms of like people paying attention to them and everything, and they had almost none of the budget that he had, so it is a very different landscape in that regards, and it does lead to some interesting questions about like how important like newspapers and and things like that actually are to you know agenda setting because like if you you know if you delve into like political science like there there's the notion of like the faces uh, I think it's Stephen Luke's four faces of power and one of those faces of power is agenda setting which is what newspapers are meant to do they're meant to set the agenda but if fewer and fewer people are reading newspapers which they are um, and more and more people are turning to alternatives whether left wing or right wing for their views whatever um, which they are where does that leave them in terms of importance like arguably significantly diminished, which means the likes of Rupert Murdoch, or or in the case of Lachlan Murdoch, maybe he doesn't matter anymore necessarily because ultimately 
it does, like there there are there are so many other places people can and do get their news that it doesn't matter what he thinks or what the headlines on the sun are people are going to get going to get 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 it from from TikTok or wherever so it's a really interesting question i think i think we'll return to i th- i wonder if actually people is in terms of agenda m- most people when the um so there's an official review that came out into where the people get their news from most people got their news I think it's 58% from television. I think next was from radio. But again, they would tend to take their cues from newspaper headlines. So it does make that agenda setting important. And it's it's just an interesting landscape. And it's interesting you mentioned Patreon because I suppose when you look at a paper like the Sunday Times, um, would have had an insight team really great investigative journalists that would take a lot of time on the story. And in fact, the Russell Brand story was uncovered by the Times in conjunction with uh with Channel 4. And that take that's a four-year investigation. I suppose you've got an you've got editors there who've been given faith with, with that story and they've given these reporters time to produce that story. The the fact that it's so it's it's harder for newspapers to pull resources as they have done for for big investigative stories yeah and that that is a problem yeah um, and, and and a large part of that comes down to the fact that the um newspapers are fundamentally commercial ventures they are businesses that have to turn a profit in some capacity or at least if they're not they need to have some means of flow of money coming in by from the from a newly bought proprietor who's able to like invest in the uh, uh invest in in the company in in the company to keep it afloat in the same way like a Saudi Arabian prince invests in like a football team for for buying new players um like because they're commercial commercial ventures they inevitably end up kind of going we cannot for the most part justify having people working four years on a single thing which may or may not lead any lead to anything and or if somebody is working on it maybe somebody else is also working on it which means we get scooped and then you know there's all kinds of things so from a commercial perspective investigative journalism just doesn't pay the bills because ultimately that's actually as important as that Russell Brand story is, and like out, uh, outing him for for what he's done and everything is. From a, from the pure business perspective, the clicks and the revenue and the ads that were that that would be were were created by that pale in comparison to whatever random tap Buzzfeed put out the other day, because that stuff gets more engagement overall even though it's much less important because people engage with it more. People, for whatever reason, want to read seven reasons why extra, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, so I would slightly disagree. So I feel like, so BuzzFeed did try to do a proper yeah, media yeah, yeah. network and that they, they had to stop because they lost money. Yep. Whereas actually the Times is profitable partly because actually Rupert Murdoch speared pay journalism yeah, pay and paid website and pay, pay that. Thank you. That's the word. Um, whereas the, something like the Guardian hasn't. Um, yeah. They just, yeah. They, it, effectively though, there, there were, there were three approaches to trying to make uh, digital journalism 
function. You had the um the, the paywall for the for, for the times, which I think has actually ended up being the most successful uh, equivalent uh, version of this, actually, because you can see it's being utilized by more and more publications. Um, you've got the paywall. You've got the Guardian kind of do almost going down a Wikipedia route. So if you, if you look at any Guardian article, there'll be a little thing that says, we, uh, we, we, we need your money so that we can continue doing this excellent work and, and things, uh, uh, which, you know, works to a degree. Uh, and then you, you have ha- read, sorry, for me, it's you've read four million articles in the past year. It's like, <laughs> yes, but they're all about hummus recipes. <laughs> or oh, cricket over oh, home, oh, but anyway. Uh, but yeah, and then you've got the third and final one, which is the, for lack of a better term, the Buzzfeed, which is just mindless articles which will get engagement and will generate some revenue for you. The 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 thing, uh, I think, basically the thing that happened with Buzzfeed is they thought they that that they thought that they could do a lot of serious stuff because uh, they did genuinely have a really good like investigative news team and, and, and things like that. Um, they thought they could do a really a good amount of stuff, big stuff, just funded basically through clickbait articles and ad revenue. Didn't work. And part is because they didn't have the brand of a big established newspaper. And they realised that this is where we should have our second sort of discussion about um, those businesses. The, the other thing I wanted to mention before... We about uh, the legacy of the Murdochs, um, uh, Ruben Murdoch in particular, but, uh, and about phone hacking, and actually, like uh, that was an actual, an actual massive scandal that I think will probably cloud reputation in Britain. Don't you think? Can't stop yeah. hacking into murder victims' phones. That's always going to be a uh, an, an issue with it. I think it's safe to say. Thank you for listening to this one. We will have the next episode out in the next few days if you are on patreon it'll probably already be on patreon.com forward slash not enough champagne if you have any ideas of topics you'd like us to talk about in the month the next election which is going to be in 20, january 2025 just to mess with all of our minds um you can get in touch with me at paperback rioter uh i'm uh, at acoustic radical happy plotting happy plotting